Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cam Simpson is sat opposite a nervous-looking man in a stifling hot room in Jordan. And he constantly asked my translator, you know, who is this guy? Who is this guy really? Why is he asking all these questions? Cam has travelled nearly 6,000 miles across the globe to find this man. A man he thinks can tell him about the fate of another. A man who can explain how 12 men would wind up dead on the wrong side of the world. A man who'd help him piece it all back to one of the most powerful companies on the planet. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. Um, I'm Cam Simpson. I'm an investigative journalist. Right now, I'm um, an international investigations editor and writer for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Um, and I'm the author of a book called The Girl from Kathmandu. Cam works on all kinds of stories. He's covered topics from the exploitation of workers making iPhones to hedge funds fueling repressive regimes. Like all good journalists, Cam is looking in the spaces between the lines of the stories he reads. He's listening out for what isn't being said in the news broadcasts. And so it was one day he would hear a quick news report that would set him on a journey that would take the next decade. The 12 Nepali men were kidnapped 10 days ago by an extremist Islamic group, Ansar al-Sunnah. There on the screen, the newscaster was talking in impassive tones about 12 men that had been kidnapped. And today, all 12 were brutally murdered, shot in the back of the head or beheaded. These images... These 12 men from Nepal had been kidnapped in Iraq and turned into um, political theater against the U.S. occupation of Iraq. And um, it was a terrorist group called Ansar al-Sunnah. And at the time, there was just this parade of attacks against contractors. That was really how the insurgency began. And it was just kind of a blip on the news, you know, like, again, just another bad day for contractors in Iraq. But it didn't really make any sense. The men were Nepalese, so no one quite knew what they were doing in Iraq. They were in unarmored taxi cabs, being driven down the Amman-Baghdad highway, the most dangerous road in the world, when they were stopped at a makeshift guard post and kidnapped by the terrorist cell Hassan al-Sunnah. They were held for 10 days, and then uh, they were executed in a pretty horrific um, video that was really sort of, I mean, we're all used to these horrible videos now, but it was really the first one of its kind. It was the first mass execution video as the cameras rolled, one man was beheaded. 
the other 11 were shot to death. The execution video was published online. It's horrible, and I had to watch it, I mean, countless, countless times, over and over again. Um, and I covered, I mean, all of us who covered the Middle East um, and covered terrorism um, had to watch these things. Everyone I know who had to do that, this was the most disturbing one. It's really, really disturbing and horrible, and yeah. The days passed, and Cam found himself still thinking about that snippet on the evening news. He couldn't get over how weird it was that these 12 men from Nepal were taken there, in the Iraqi desert. It didn't make any sense to me. It, it just, I couldn't get my head around how, I knew just en enough about Nepal to be dangerous, basically, like, knowing that these men came from a place that was incredibly remote. Most of them, if not all of them, had probably never even been on a paved road before until they were brought into Iraq or turned on a light switch or, or turned the tap on running water, and yet here they were. Now, Cam was in a job that allowed him to keep asking these kind of questions. He was working for the Chicago Tribune. I had a day job, which was as a foreign affairs and diplomatic correspondent, and I traveled a lot for that job and then I you know I had this other mission to do investigative projects um, international investigative projects that sort of were about the US in the world so Cam got to work trying to find out what he could from his desk in Washington you know in every spare moment I sort of tried to dig into what was happening you know how did this happen who were these men how did they get there what was really going on with contracting and I, and I, and I sort of started to put together some pieces, but there was almost nothing that could be found. There was very little from my desk in making phone calls out into the world that I could see. But there was one thing he found, a recently published report from the UN's International Labour Organization. A dense, pretty academic tome. And it was called something like Human Trafficking uh, and Foreign Migration um, a human rights perspective from South Asia. And it was a series of sort of academic papers about the state in all the countries that were feeder countries for the, sort of the birth of modern-day slavery and international human trafficking. And there was a chapter on Nepal that had been written by a guy who headed a migration think tank in Kathmandu. Ah, so he had a lead. Or at least the name of someone who might be able to tell him if people were indeed being trafficked from the pool to the Middle East. And if they were, could those 12 men have been victims of some kind of international slave trade? Cam knew what he had to do. And I phoned him up. Um, started phone, phoning him up and interviewing him from Washington's 12, I think 11 hour and 15 minute time difference. They have a weird way that they set their clocks. Um, and... I just started doing these at-length interviews with him, just trying to figure out what was going on and how these men might have connected into this bigger picture of what was happening in the world. Around this time, Cat was also looking into the contracts behind the Iraq reconstruction effort. You know, realizing that fighting wars had been contracted out in America that it was all, these were the largest wartime contracts in history. They were the largest government services contracts in history. And there was, they were completely shrouded in secrecy. 
the post-war rebuilding of Iraq was a massive project. People were being flown in from all over the world. Military personnel, of course. They lived in sprawling bases like Camp Liberty. But there were others. Someone had to clean the sheets of all these soldiers, make their food, launder their clothes. And that took an army of workers of its own. And Cam found that there was one company that had snapped up many of the lucrative contracts for supplying such a labour force. The main company, the company that had the biggest contract, is called Halliburton. And its main subsidiary is called KBR, which was for Kellogg, Brown and Root. But all of that had been kept secret under the veil of national security. Um, but it was massive. I mean, they ran literally everything other than the killing and the military, like the fighting operations. You know, they, they dug the ditches, they built all the bases, everything had been privatized, sort of without anybody realizing that it had actually happened. And they needed tens of thousands of men to come and do the scud work and the schlep work of the war. So Cam knows that these companies are shipping people to Iraq as fast as they can get them in. And out there, there are some whispered concerns about trafficking from Nepal. But could the two things be connected? Well, there was one more clue. Shortly after the deaths of the 12 Nepalese men, the Associated Press had published a short article for the Middle Eastern News. An article that included quotes from a so-called labour broker, a guy called Iyad Mansour, who was based in Jordan, and who said he'd been involved in setting up the work for the 12 Nepali men who died. Well, Cam knew what he had to do next. Somehow, he had to get to Jordan and find this man. Cam has the scent of a story in his nostrils. He can't stop thinking about the 12 Nepalese men who were killed in Iraq. He wants to know how they came to be there. And Cam is resourceful. So when he saw an opportunity to find out more, he didn't hesitate. And so I sort of, I sort of blagged my way onto a plane by telling my bosses that, look, I'll, I'll, I'll go cover a conference in Amman called Rebuilding Iraq, and it, but it, Iraq was still smoldering then, so there wasn't any rebuilding happening. The conference wasn't in Iraq. That was far too dangerous. It was in neighboring Jordan, the country where Iyad, the labor broker, was. So soon Cam's plane was touching down in the capital, Amman. Amman is a very small city, um, but it's it was at the time it would become the Casablanca of the Iraq War. I mean, it was booming with everybody, every kind of shady character you can possibly imagine. It was filled with contractors um, because it was too dangerous at that point for people to be staying in Baghdad. Lots of American NGOs were there, lots of international NGOs were there. So it was kind of, it was buzzing. Cam's boss had sent him there to report on this conference. So of course he went. But as soon as he could, Cam filed his stories on the conference and set off on the trail of the Yad. He was sure he'd have some of the pieces he'd need to untangle all of this. It's Amman is a city of circles, so there are traffic circles that sort of make up the geography of the city, and I found him just off one of the circles where there were lots of construction businesses. It was quite, it was dusty, he was kind of um, above a storefront. And I found his office and knocked on the door, and there is, um, again, the other thing I knew just a little bit about was culture in the Middle East. I've been in and out of the Middle East since 9-11. And, you know, there's a tradition in Arab culture of welcoming guests, because when you live in the desert, 
you know, you never know when you're going to need someone to give you water and give you shelter from the heat. And so there is a, a culture of, especially in that part of the Middle East, of being very welcoming to anyone who's traveling. And so as a journalist, you can get in the door. It doesn't mean you're going to get the truth, but you can always get in the door. And that was that was kind of um, the approach that I took with Iyad. I just showed up at his door and he couldn't say no and he let me in. But Iyad was on edge, really on edge. He kept asking Cam's translator who this guy is. Is he CIA, he'd asked. And Iyad would tell one story and then another, anything to get Cam out of the door. But Cam wasn't being brushed off so easily. For the next two weeks, he'd returned several times to Iyad's door. You know, it's sort of the Colombo approach, just a few more questions, you know. And he, he had told three different versions of the story. And finally, by the third story, it was, pretty, it, was, it was getting closer and closer to the truth. And we did keep returning, and we did keep seeing him over and over again. And my, um, my assistant in Jordan just basically worked out that he, he was going to tell Iyad, which was kind of true, that I'm a bit mad, <laughs> that I wasn't going to go away until I knew some semblance of the truth, until he was straight with me. And he said to him, you know, yeah, that basically this man is not going to leave you alone until you tell him what happened. And he got, I think it just was enough. He just wanted me to go away. And so that was finally sort of how we got through the door of the truth. At first, he had insisted he had nothing to do with 12 men, never heard of him that they must simply have made their own way to Jordan, all by themselves. And then he changed tact. Oh yes, he did know them. He'd heard a firm in Nepal called Moonlight had sent men, but it was to another Jordanian company. And then he broke, telling Cam that in fact he was a labour broker. He would help move men over from Nepal, with the law of well-paying jobs in the Middle East. And he described it in terms of, of commodities. He said, you know, um, think of Nepal as the factory. It produces the goods. I'm the middleman. I buy the goods. I bring them here, and then I sell them, and I pass them on. These men were part of a much larger group, Iyad offered up one day, maybe 80 or so. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. There was a steady stream of labor arriving from the Far East into Jordan. Nepalese workers were popular, he said, because they're good, they're honest, and they accept low salaries. Iyad told Cam that men would arrive at the airport and then be taken to a company called Dawood. They sent them on to jobs as cleaners and cooks for the US troops. But he couldn't tell him much more about Dawood. He just knew a jumble of names that might be useful. A guy called Ali al-Nadi, who's connected to the trafficking chain. And even more importantly, he let slip that the man who picked up these 12 men, the men that had been kidnapped, was a guy called Amin. So there's Cam. His time in Jordan is running out, and all he has is a jumble of names. No one seems to know this Amin guy, but he did track down Ali al-Nadi, a dry cleaner by trade, but a man apparently deeply connected to the human trafficking that was going on. So one evening, Cam invited him out, and the men met, in the opulent surroundings of a man's Grand Hyatt hotel bar. Al-Nadi had brought two colleagues with him. One of them caught Cam's eye. He was calling himself Abdullah, and he seemed really nervy. He would jump in to stop his colleague from saying too much. 
did everything he could to shut up his boss and keep him from telling me, you know, what I wanted to know and what I needed to know. But these people, I think they were quite, you know, they were sort of like small-time businessmen who were suddenly rolling in money because of the American War and the billions of dollars that were being spent on contractors. And he kind of wanted to big himself up a little bit. You know, here he was holding court for an American journalist, and he was a guy who just run a dry-cleaning business, you know, in Amman, Jordan, and suddenly he was a big man. At the end of the night, the now half-drunk Al-Nadi boastfully handed Cam a DVD, a news segment showing him meeting with a Jordanian ambassador for the Philippines. When Cam got it translated, he realised it was a news report stating that the Philippines government was now intervening to stop the exploitation of his citizens at the hands of men just like Al-Nadi, and that Al-Nadi was directly connected to the company Ayed had mentioned, Dawood. And that nervy colleague, Abdullah, some time later, Cam would come to realise that he played a much bigger part in all this than he could have ever imagined. Flying back out of a man, as the city streets faded into clouds below him, Cam was frustrated. He got close, he was sure of it, but he didn't have all he needed to join the dots. On the plane back to Washington, I knew the next thing that I had to do was I had to go to Nepal, and I had to try to find as many of these men's families as I possibly could. And... So I started working on that. Back at his desk in Washington, Cam picked up the phone once again to ring the academic he'd found in Nepal. And I said, I really want to come there. Can you help me? The guy said, yes, sure. But then... I didn't hear from him again, and I was quite desperately emailing him. Screw it, thought Cam. He knew where this guy worked. And so he booked a ticket, got on a plane, and just turned up at his door. And I think he didn't believe I was coming until I actually arrived. And um, I hired his entire staff, basically. I hired a sociologist who worked for him. I hired his driver. I hired a guy who was sort of his fixer. Through local journalists, Cam was able to get his hands on a Nepalese government briefing document that had some more details about the 12 victims. There in the report was a list of their families' addresses, or rather, their home villages. Which is what passes for an address in Nepal. And um, we set out across the country. For days, Cam and his team drove from village to village in the remotest areas of Nepal. He'd found almost all the families, but there was one person he was determined to find. The widow of a murdered man called Jeet. A woman whose fight for justice was only just beginning. So Cam Simpson is in Nepal. He's on a mission to find the families of 12 men murdered in Iraq. Men whose public executions shook Nepalese society to its core. You know, the idea that someone's life could be so upended in this beautiful, remote corner of the world because of the Iraq War was something that just really, I couldn't fathom. Through meeting the families, Cam started to piece together the system that had transported the men halfway across the world. He heard how they'd seen jobs advertised, good, well-paying jobs that were supposedly in Jordanian five-star hotels. Attracted by the lure of an incredible wage, the men signed up with a labour broker in Nepal, a company called Moonlight. The company had charged the men exorbitant fees for the trouble, 700 to 1,000 US dollars each, money they could little afford. Some of the men sold land or put their farms up as collateral. But don't worry, they were told, you'll easily pay it back once you're working. And with the promise of money for those they were leaving behind, the men packed their things up and set off. 
expecting decent jobs in luxurious surroundings in Jordan, never Iraq. But it was at the Jordanian border that the men had been packed into unprotected taxis and driven down the most dangerous road in the world. And then they were kidnapped. What Cam was realising day by day was the challenges the widows of the murdered men now faced. I mean, there's really, these women, I don't know how else to say it, but I mean, you know, they're just treated like something on someone's shoe that they stepped on in the street. Um, you sort of become, um, a generous way is to say you become a member of your husband's family after you get married. Uh, and in the worst cases, you sort of become property of the husband's family. And then if your husband dies, you're, you're discarded. Cam was trying to find a woman called Kamala, the wife of one of the men who died. He heard from those that knew the family that she was staying in an ashram, a home for destitute widows. So Cam made his way to the ashram, and with his translator, explained to Kamala he was there to hear her story. So the ashram is a campus. It, it looks like a, like a small, like a school, basically. And there's a, there's a blue iron gate, and you come inside the gate. It's really, it's a beautiful place. And um, we sat sort of, we sat outside in the heat. Uh, there was a bit of a gazebo, so there was some shade. They sat down to talk, and as gently as he could, Cam tried to pry answers from her. But she was so devastated at that point, I mean, it, and she literally just sat there and held her her infant daughter and and cried the entire time. She couldn't speak to me, she couldn't tell me anything. Um, it was by far... I mean, this journey included many of the hardest interviews I've ever done in my life, but that one especially was really, really difficult. The interview didn't provide much in the way of hard facts, but seeing Kamala's grief and the devastation this event had left behind meant he could better explain the impact of this supply chain. And while he was in Nepal, he did manage to find some really vital clues. I found one family sort of on the very edge of Nepal, near the border with India, in the lowlands. Um, and, um, you know, one thing I asked everybody was any paperwork that they had. Um, did they have any way to reach um, their brothers or their husbands or their sons? And in this place in the lowlands in Nepal, when I asked the question, you know, did you have any way to reach them? Had they ever been in touch? There were these three best friends who all came from this small town, and one of their brothers reached into his pocket, and he pulled out his wallet, and he pulled out a small piece of folded scrap paper that had three phone numbers on it. There, these three had phoned home at one point, just before they were sent into Iraq. And um, the three numbers, two of them were one digit off. It was clearly like a business. And then the other one... Um, was just a random number, and we made a copy of that. So we traced all the networks in in um, in Nepal, like from the village recruiter straight to the main recruiter in Kathmandu, and then we were able to connect them into the supply chain that led to the people I already knew about in Jordan. And but little clues like these phone numbers, you know, I needed to go back to Jordan because people in the supply chain had lied to me about what had happened and I needed to figure out a way to find the truth. With the phone numbers carefully copied out, Cam made his way back to the airport. It was time to head back to Jordan. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Back in the oppressive heat of a man's busy streets, Cam was on his way to government offices. He and his translator would spend days ricocheting from one office to another in search of someone who could help them find out when the 12 men registered with the police, as they were required to do when they entered Jordan, and what address they'd put down as their official residence while staying in the country. I was able to get some other records from the Jordanian police. Um, All of these guys were registered after they'd been there for 10 days. And Cam had another clue. The phone numbers the family members in Nepal had given him. Two of the numbers led him to a small shop in a rundown neighborhood, a shop that allowed customers to pay for international calls. It was from these cramped plywood booths that the men would ring their families, dismayed, telling them the news that there were no five-star hotel jobs waiting for them. And they were trapped. The store owner didn't know much about the 12 men, but he told Cam he had loads of foreign workers using the shop all the time. He said someone just up the street was keeping men in a house. So Cam set off, walking in the direction the shop owner had pointed him in. He didn't know what he was looking for exactly, so he and his translator would stop people in the streets. Did anyone know where foreign men might be being held? And so we started asking questions in the neighborhood, and everybody pointed to this house. Soon they had a possible address. A few people had pointed them towards 58 Malfa Street. And Cam now also had paperwork from the police registration process. And it showed that eight of the 12 men who were murdered had stayed in the same place. Now, he found himself stood outside that very house. It was on a concrete slab on the side of a hill. There was a weird addition to the house, which was like a box room that was was on the side of the house. It had an outside door. There was a chain around it. There were 21 foam sleeping mats stacked up next to the front door, which were the beds where these guys were sleeping inside that room. Oh, and the final piece of the puzzle. The last phone number on that list of three that they had. Well, it turns out it was registered to this address. And it was the address of a man they'd already met once before. Cam stood stealing himself on the step as the door swung open. 
There in the doorway, a look of total incomprehension on his face was the shifty guy who'd called himself Abdullah at the fancy hotel meeting. The guy working for the company that was now known to have transported the men across the border into Iraq. The guy Iyad had told him had picked up the 12 Nepalese men when they first arrived in Jordan. Amin. He opened the door and he was wide-eyed and terrified. But again, that thing about Arab hospitality, he had to invite us in and let us in. They sat down, and Cam explained that he'd found out the truth. That this guy's name was not Abdullah, but Amin, and that he had played a big part in holding these men and trafficking them on. We sat down on his couch, and I gave him the records from the police, and I'd already highlighted his address and his phone number. And he flipped through the pages, and his eyes were wide open, and he was quite terrified. But still, he was denying everything. No, no, that's not me, he'd say. We sort of did this staged moment that I'd hoped would shake him into telling me some truth. The number written on the form that was in his lap, that was highlighted, was his phone number. And I had my assistant, my Jordanian assistant, dial his number from my cell phone. And so his phone started ringing in the middle of him looking at these papers and his head popped up and he was startled. And I held the phone in front of his face and I said, I mean, you see, it's your number. It's your number on the paper. And he was kind of freaked out. I was hoping he might feel trapped and tell me some version of the truth. And I said to him at that point, you know, we have a problem. You've been lying the entire time. Either you lied to the Jordanian police or you're lying to me now. And he was shouting and I said, look, why don't we go to the Zahran police station right now and talk to the police and let them sort out whether you're lying to me or lying to them. And he got incredibly angry and I basically said, well, let's just go. And uh, But then, you know, I knew that I had the story. I'd put together all the links. Now Cam knew that the men had been moved by a mean Dawood company. He could follow the links. He found out that Dawood supplied men to a company called KBR, and that the parent company of KBR was Halliburton. These 12 men had been sent to Iraq under false pretenses and were on their way to menial labour jobs inside one of the US Halliburton-run military camps when they were killed. But now Cam knew where the 12 men were going, he wanted to find out more about all the other men that had made the same journey, those that made it to places like Camp Liberty. What happened next to them? Well, rather fortuitously, right at that time, a whistleblower from the camps was reaching out to journalists. Serendipitously, and his email got obviously directed to me. The whistleblower was telling some horror stories about conditions in the camp, but Cam wanted more proof. I wanted us to see it with our own eyes and interview people with our own notebooks and our own words. Now, he knew that he, as a white American, would never be able to sneak into the laborers' quarters, where the men were from India, Nepal, and other Eastern countries. So he called in a colleague. We had a journalist, a friend of mine, who was a Pakistani-American, um, embedded on the biggest base in Baghdad, um, with the idea that this guy would bring him into the segregated ghetto that was the, called the Indian camp. The workers were all sort of kept behind secure places on the bases. They weren't free to move around and kept under guard, and he brought, um, this this whistleblower brought Amr Madhani, was his name, he was the journalist, uh, worked for the Chicago Tribune, uh, in with him in his truck, and the guards didn't even look twice because he looks like 
the workers who are behind the wire. And he was able to interview the workers and and so we could draw the bigger story of what was happening. So Matoni was in, and he was hearing all kinds of things from the men inside, like how they typically earned just 65 to $112 per week, depending on which country they came from, that workdays lasted 12 hours, and that the men could go for weeks without a day off. It was all important details that Madani scribbled down in his notebook. But then the plan started to go wrong. The second day he went in, he was arrested by a security contractor that um, uh, first thing they did was they took his passport, which is what they'd done to their workers, and then they also told him, um, maybe we should just take you, take you outside and kick your ass. They threatened him physically. They threatened him with arrest and... Uh, he was there for quite some time, and then finally they let him go. But it was enough. Madani and Cam could now tell the story of what life in the camps was like for these migrant men far from home. Cam was careful to put everything he was planning to say about Halliburton to them, so they could comment on the findings. When I do these projects, like, no one is surprised by what they end up reading, you know, in the magazine or the newspaper, because I'm in touch with them for weeks, if not months, in advance asking questions, asking detailed questions. I think we gave them something like 64 written questions, um, you know, none of which they actually answered. Sort of the reply was kind of a press release, but their lawyers wrote all of their answers. In their response, Halliburton would not say whether anyone had been reprimanded in the case of the Nepalis. It said it hired subcontracting firms through a government-approved procedure system and explained that any third country nationals employed under its contracts in Iraq, and how they got there, was the responsibility of the subcontractors. It said it would fully investigate any allegations of wrongdoing by those firms, but would not say whether it had ever investigated any of them. In 2005, Cam published the story in the Chicago Tribune. The whole package over two days was something like 15,000 words. It was, it was a, um, a substantial undertaking. And over time, the article started to make waves. The U.S. government got very interested. The State Department took notice. The head of the human trafficking office, the ambassador at large for human trafficking, called me in. Um, Congress got started investigating, or at least trying to make some noise. The inspector general at the Pentagon uh, started an investigation. But the story wasn't over there. Remember that broken woman Cam had found hidden away in an ashram in Kathmandu? She was about to start the fight back. By 2008, Cam had moved on to other stories, but he was always keeping one eye out on what was happening with the Nepal case. And one day, he heard some news. A group of human rights lawyers were suing the Halliburton subsidiary KBR and its Jordanian partner Dawood on human trafficking charges. A wildly ambitious and rather unprecedented move. And the lead complainant in the case was Kamala, the widow Cam had met in the ashram in Nepal. The woman who'd been barely able to utter a word through her grief when he first met her. Seeing how she had completely transformed herself and transformed her life, and uh, learning that she had risen up and become the lead witness in this massive human rights case in America against Halliburton, I was just really blown away, and I knew, like, I have to find out what happened to her. I mean, she was the reason that I really wanted to do this in the first place, 
this sort of improbable victim of America's forever wars. And I had, I knew I had to figure out sort of what became of her. Cam wanted to tell more of Kamla's story. And after getting a book commission, he headed back to Nepal to spend a month with her. Going into all the details and going to every place, we spent time in the village, which is the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life, where she grew up, her and her husband. I mean, it's one of those places you feel in your chest more than you see in your eyes. I mean, it, it just is extraordinary. The vista, I've never seen anything like it in the foothills of the Himalayas. She was born on the side of a mountain uh, half a mile in the sky, and it just is extraordinary. In early 2018, the book was published, titled after Kamala. It's called The Girl from Kathmandu, and it charts her fight for justice for her husband. A fight that would pit her in the US courts against subsidiaries of the world's biggest company. In the end, Dawood settled the case out of court. The KBR case was battered around the US judicial system for years, but finally the Supreme Court put a stop to it. Still, it was not before Kamala was able to look the other side in the eye and tell them how a chain of wrongdoing had stolen her husband from her. And the money from the Dawood settlement went to good use. The families of the men shared it out, and Kamala spent her share rebuilding property that had been damaged in a devastating earthquake of 2015. After more than a decade following the story, Cam Simpson's book, The Girl from Kathmandu, hit the bookstores and got rave reviews. Simpson has given us an anatomy of globalised labour at its most shameful, wrote the New York Times book review. By scraping away at layers of corporate misdirection, and by asking and asking again and not letting go, Simpson reached something naked and ugly and unimpeachably true. Thanks to Cam Simpson for telling his story. There's a link to where you can get the book in the show notes. The tip-off is hosted and produced by me, Maeve McClennigan. Music in this episode is by Dice Muse, The Losers, Blue Dot Sessions, and recordings from the Middle East and Nepal were from Turku and Samuel Corwin. I'll be taking a little break for a few weeks, but watch out for some special episodes coming your way in September. And in the meantime, why not tweet about the show, at Tip Off Podcast, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show. It really helps other people find it. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.